Welcome to episode 243 of Late Night Linux. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Will, you hate freedom, and so I've got the Amazon spying devices, but you've got something about rooting them. Yeah, very early Echo Dots, the ones that look like a hockey puck, have been rooted now. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is interesting if you read the the link in the docs about how they went about rooting this device. The company who developed this uh, original device, Lab126, which is an Amazon internal hardware development company, have actually done a pretty good job. And there's an interesting bit of information about the security on the device, the fact that the mute button and the LED are controlled by the kernel, that like you can't just write an app that is capable of changing the status of these devices sure. so that you can't <laughs> pretend that the microphone is muted when it's actually not. And this review of the security of the device is generally pretty positive and said that they did do a good job. What they left in there were some debug options, which allows you to use Fastboot to boot a different kernel. And once you've booted this different kernel, then you're in and you know, you've know you got root and you can do what you want. So it's it's an interesting security overview of the device. And if you are concerned that it is just stealing your thoughts, this might make you feel a little bit better about that, that they have put some thought into it. And the things that they claim, like the mute button being a hardware mute button, is true. That's good. But the other side of this is a bit more interesting to us as an open source podcast, as a Linux podcast. When we talked about Home Assistant launching their year of voice and how they wanted to create their own voice assistant that would remove the dependency on people like Amazon. The concern I had was the availability of hardware. Who would want to buy some 3D printed, janky, homemade device that is a far-field microphone and kind of looks like a a massive blob of plastic? Nobody wants that. That hurts. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at you here. What they want (laughs) is something that looks like it's been built properly and is decent and you can't buy off the shelf something which is open and also decent and so this maybe fills that gap maybe you could go and buy some of these first or second gen echo dots put your own kernel on them run your own open source software on them and then hook them up to a home assistant in your own home and have a completely closed system that does not rely on the internet to do your voice recognition so i'm interested in this for a couple of reasons one i think it's a cool hack and two i think it's potentially the answer to the biggest problem for home assistant in my mind which is decent quality nice looking devices that people would want to use yeah i remember you saying about the different types of microphone and stuff. Was it near field, far field, all sorts of stuff like that? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, no, that'd be cool. That would be good. I mean, I'm not opposed to the actual idea, but yeah, just don't fancy somebody else running that. <laughs> mm. Well, there's me thinking you were going to order several of these, Fanny, now that you know <laughs> that they're nice and secure. Not unless I'm putting my own software on them and I'd never get round to doing that, so they'd be a mm. right waste of money. <laughs> all right, Fanny, Kyber, you've snuck a KDE thing in here. I did. So one of the lightning talks uh, during Academy was by Jean-Baptiste, the, I don't know his other bit of his name, from the Videoland project. And this is based on the fact that through COVID, obviously lots of companies had to do remote work. Everybody discovered that it worked fine for a lot of stuff, but it was abysmal for things like gaming being the top one. Anything where latency is a big issue. 
So based on using the libvlc or libvideoclan library, he has produced a Rust-based sort of remote control of computers. And what he does is he sets up a box beside him that's running this thing called Kyber, which is a AGPL or commercially licensed available too, which is quite smart. They can sell it to companies that want to offer this as a service, which is no problem by me. And they are able to get down to about 40 milliseconds, which is about three frames per second delay, but uh, it, it'll be roughly down to 20 milliseconds, which is about one and a half frames. So, I mean, near on the same with very little latency. And as what they're doing is they're using games as the sort of default test case for it, because if you can get games to work, you can get anything to work. And it seems to be going really well. I can't see a way to get it right now, but it's definitely something to really watch. And it's got the ability to forward on input using the quick protocol. So it's like TCP light, essentially, where, you know, they can drop a couple of frames where you're looking at the screen, but you want to make sure that you definitely get all the command inputs that you're sending. And I don't know when they're going to release. It was just a quick lightning talk on Academy. But if you've got around 10 minutes to spare and you're interested, definitely a thing to watch. And I'm really looking forward to this coming out because I have a few projects and clients that have needed something like this back in COVID days. But, you know, if we have a proper replacement, Rustesk was one that I was using, but there's a bit of a sort of iffiness maybe that some people have highlighted about that, maybe unfairly as well. But, uh, you know, if this thing, you can run it your own system, it's a client server protocol. Brilliant. Graham, let's indulge you (laughs) with an article from Technologizer, the end of computer magazines in America. This is by Harry McCracken, and he talks about how maximum PC and Mac life are ceasing production of the print version and going digital only, and they are the last two computer magazines. Except that then he goes on to say, oh, well, apart from Linux magazine and this magazine and this magazine and loads of other ones, but yeah, the main ones are are dead. So that's it, the end of computer magazines in America. And he also laments that the only magazines that are doing well in America are British imports. So uh, well done your legacy, I suppose, Graham. Yeah. I mean, I I love magazines. I I miss working on magazines a lot. I still do some a bit of freelance work for Linux magazine. And I mean, the writing was on the wall for us 15, 18 years ago. I think the culture that everybody liked about magazines was the idea of us a bit like you know us talking here in the podcast that we were some kind of friendship group as a family that were putting this in passion into the pages and that was how it was in that that time but magazines since then are now run these magazines in particular are franchised out from the UK where the content is written as a, and a kind of I hate even calling it content as a content farm aggregated onto different websites and into different print titles or brands so that idea of magazines that I think most of us love has, has been dead for a long time and it was part of the reason why we left Future and tried to create Linux Voice but I'm still sad to see titles like this closing I still think there's a place for very small scale magazines with a print run of 10,000, 15,000 for a niche where they've got passionate engagement for the content. And so I don't think they're going to die, but the culture that maybe those of us of a certain generation remember has been dead for some time. There's a really interesting photograph at the towards the end of that article of a newsstand. Um, <laughs> I don't know where it is, maybe. Oh, it says it in a Barnes & Noble. And there's dozens of different magazines in this picture. 
and quite a lot of them are guides not not really magazines like there's guides to using your camera there's guides to Fortnite, and that seems to be certainly whenever i've gone through an airport that seems to be the prominent thing that you buy now it's like a a mini book not really a, a, a magazine that's about anything any one topic in in depth there is also a, a photo of 2600 magazine which has been around for a very long time and is called out in the article specifically as having the production values of a fanzine which is absolutely true but also i think that's almost what you're talking about graham mm. like a very small very focused magazine that is for a particular audience and is produced in small numbers and has this sort of more uh, i don't know fanatical kind of following boutique yeah yeah boutique i like it yeah there you go but yeah, you know, generally speaking, the the magazines that are there are not really magazines as I knew them. You don't buy them to get the news anymore because all of that is sort of force-fed to you on the internet all day. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that photo because there's the Hacker's Manual 2023 up there at the front in that picture. And a lot of that content was written by me and the Linux Format team probably 12 years ago. And the thing that companies can do is they can make some updates, they can commission a few articles. They they call those things like evergreen content that go alongside the monthly content and they'll do a deal with whoever's stocking them on the shelves to have a number of these every year. And it lets them kind of balance the cost of the content that some of that stuff would have been originally in the magazine and then put in these, they called them bookazines. And so they sell really well and they sell for a much longer period of time and then you can update them with just a couple of new entries um, and that's what they've been doing with the hackers manual ever since we did the learn to hack cover feature what strikes me is that one of the only magazines that has made it and has survived is linux magazine and that's probably because it's niche and that kind of ties in with how the internet and culture has gone there was a time when you lot were young when there was a very much a style of that time so if you look at a photo from the 60s you know it's the 60s the 70s you know that the 80s you know you can just instantly tell by the fashions whereas if you look at a photo from 15 20 years ago and a photo from now you wouldn't necessarily know the difference between them because there's not one cultural force anymore there's a million small cultural forces like this show that you're listening to now, we are part of that. And Linux Magazine is probably at similar scale as well. And you've got probably some magazines of, I don't know, train enthusiasts and stuff. Maybe it's all online, I don't know. But much like you've got a podcast for everything or a YouTube channel for everything, the idea of a magazine on a thousand newsstands across the world and, and selling hundreds of thousands of copies. That just seems like it's from a bygone era. It is. I mean, I used to write for PC Plus and it used to sell over 100,000 copies. And that was in the early 2000s. Linux format sold 60,000 copies. And then by the time I left Future, I think PC Plus had gone bust and Linux format was on a small percentage of that original sales. I mean, people have said it before, but I guess it's a bit like vinyl. You've got to kind of enjoy the experience a little bit and spoil yourself with a cup of coffee and a magazine on something you're interested in. And there is one magazine still going, which I have subscribed to on and off over the years, which is Wired magazine. Now, there's a UK edition, but there is absolutely a US edition as well. Now, I don't know, maybe that's published by a UK or European publisher and so doesn't count as far as this uh, article is concerned. 
But that's a relatively niche article, but covers technology in a way that I don't think any other magazine does and is still going and has been going for, well, I don't know, at least 20 years. So it is possible to produce something with high production values and a relatively broad topic and still keep going. They do tend to have a lot of big advertisers in Wired that perhaps are advertising there as a sort of specialist publication rather than the sorts of things you'd buy at the airport. But it, it, it must be possible to continue to run a magazine these days. Yeah, the ABC for Wired last year was uh, 41,850 copies a month. That's quite a lot smaller than I thought it would be. In the UK, that is anyway. Oh, okay, okay. That's quite a lot more than I thought it would be then, actually. <laughs> I mean, I know we've harped about this before, but this whole thing of big companies that need to expand every month all the time ad infinitum, and I think there's definitely a place for a magazine, as we've said, to be a set community almost, a community get involved in stuff. And the problem, I think, is when large companies take over a whole load of magazines and then expect them all to, you know, double their growth every fucking year or something stupid like that. And I think that's the big problem. I think that's the death of almost all industries where there's many things that could just tick over at a nice level. Everybody gets a job, gets paid out of it, and it brings value to everybody who uses or buys it or whatever. But I think the big problem is the fact that in a business sense of things, if you're not growing like crazy, like a cancer, essentially, then, you know, you, you might as well be dead. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think if there was a way that we could, I don't know, this is really is like get the kumbaya out here, but like if there was a community way to sponsor and print and make these things, I think they would do better in the long run for it. And that's exactly where we come back to like the fanzine sort of thing that 2600 mag is. Yeah, and I actually buy one magazine called Electronic Sound, which actually started off as a crowdfunding campaign to create a digital magazine. They created the digital magazine. It, it's kind of, it deals with electronic music. And then the digital magazine was so successful, they put it into print. And that must be very, very small scale. I wonder if anyone's even paid to write for it. But it's super high quality, beautiful paper, beautiful artwork, and it, it obviously is doing well. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash late night Linux to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. 
Richard says, Graham should take a look at LinkedIn with a G versus Wallabag. With its bookmark share feature, the entire show could use this. It's really good. It's quite odd to be called LinkedIn, though. Mm. That seems like Microsoft are not going to be very happy about that. I feel like I should tell you about all my business strategies and Six Sigma and (laughs) such forth and how great it is. And I've been in my job for X number of years. Yeah, cool. Well, in our Google Doc, you see it's underlined in red. Click on it and see what it suggests. Oh, funnily enough, LinkedIn. (laughs) Yeah, but thanks, Richard, for sending that. I took a look. And I've, I really like the um, article caching feature in Wallabag, which this doesn't seem to do. It's more like, um, yeah, a bookmark manager that you can handle yourself. But it looks like a much better option if you don't have, if you don't have a VPS with too much capacity or just want to run something off a Raspberry Pi. Maybe an old VPS running CentOS. <laughs> 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 Mohammed says, I have a discovery for you. Gum is a very nice tool which helps make user input look much prettier in shell scripts. Discovered it today and thought I should share. And yeah, it does seem to do exactly what you said. Yeah, it's actually pretty nice. Yeah. Every time you use shell script, you then get penalized about 20 minutes down the road. You go, fucking should have written in Python, bollocks. <laughs> I know we just take it for granted, but it's worth noticing that we talk so much about command line tools mm. and how much we all still live in the terminal and love it. You know, whether it's Will's RSS readers or this or whatever it happens to be, it's it's just I never would have imagined that we still get so much out of it, mm. you know, so many years later. And I do. Well, I think it's what sets a proper computer enthusiast apart from just a normal user, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter what platform you're on. There are command line terminals available for macOS, Windows and Linux. And That's one of the draws of Linux is that the terminal is always a first-class citizen. You don't have to use it. You could use something Mm. like Linux Mint or Ubuntu and never open the terminal potentially. But to get the most out of any operating system, I mean, most of the stuff we link to, the screenshots are fucking Mac OS. (laughs) But the thing is, if if a terminal application is done really well, it can actually be far nicer than Mm. many a terribly done with generic, shitey, gooey building blocks applications are done. Whereas, you you know, you can use color, you can use highlights, you you can focus the user's attention in the right way, whereas a GUI has to compete with all the other shite that's going on on the screen. Mm. And there's no room for kind of distractions. You know, it really forces people to design something that does the utility that you need from it. And also, it's available over good old SSH Mm. as well. You're not having to worry about forwarding X and whatever. So yeah, it's always good to see great terminal applications. Achilles wrote to us about a talk that he attended at DevConf in Bruno, and it's by Matthew Miller, and he goes through the history of various Fedora releases. And Achilles says, I don't know if this is relevant to the show itself, but I thought you'd all enjoy it as a nice little trip down memory lane, a history lesson, and a great way to remember how far things have come in the last 20-ish years. There's a lot of drama and negative feelings going around these days, particularly in the FOSS and Linux world. And it's always important to remember the humble beginnings, I think. So that is pretty cool. But then um, he gives the links to it and he says, oh, P.S., one of the answers in the Q&A at the end will be of particular interest to some of the hosts. And then he gives a hmm. time-stamped link. And it's where Matthew talks about how immutable is definitely the future mm-hmm. and failing is wrong. He yeah, specifically yeah, sure. says failing from late night Linux is totally wrong yeah, and yeah, uh, immutable yeah. is the future. It is a good talk. I've, I've not watched all of it. I've got it pinned in my 
to watch tabs. I, I've watched chunks of it every time I get a bit of spare time, but it's actually it's good. I love that sort of computer historical type stuff. It's quite great. nice to see where we have actually come from. It's scary, some of the shite that we put up with and thought was cool at the time when it came out. Yeah, I haven't talked to Matthew for ages, but he's a good lad. So yeah, do uh, check it out. Link in the show notes. So we got a message from Michael who says, if you're interested in cool ways to learn a programming language, I recommend exercism.org. That's E-X-E-R-C-I-S-M.org. I've used it to learn new languages as well as practice the ones I know or sort of know. For example, I immensely improved my bash scripting this way. There are several reasons why I find exorcism to stand out. First, they have a large set of exercises that are tailored for learning different aspects of programming languages rather than algorithmic problems. But the major advantages of this platform is the mentoring system. Once you submit your solution, you can request mentoring. Depending on the language track, you may get a response within hours or days and you can start a conversation and iterate on your solution. It is absolutely amazing how much you can learn from a tiny little exercise once an expert takes it apart. Anyway, I thought you may be interested since learning Python has been mentioned a bunch recently. Yeah, this sounds like an idea that I had, which was a training site where you would get experts to come and volunteer their time to help people, to mentor them and give something back to the industry. But it seems that Exorcism have already done this and it's free to use and they rely on donations of money and time, crucially. Because it's one thing to just give you a bunch of resources, but this looks like there are people volunteering their time to teach other people and give something back. So this does sound like a really cool project to me. Because, I mean, you could see from the likes of Stack Exchange, like the various versions of, you know, whether they're doing programming or sysadmin stuff, there's people out there who like to, well, not play a sort of a points game, but just like to help. And, you know, if you can give back to people in this sort of way, then that's kind of cool if they can make a nice sort of fair enumeration of uh, both time and energy for people to go through it it's just quite cool what i like about this method of teaching is that you learn the idiomatic ways of writing the language from a person rather than from just like reading it so you write a solution to the problem and somebody comes along and suggests yeah but you should i don't know you should format it like this or like this is a better way of doing it those little tweaks are the difference between reading it in a book and just learning it parrot fashion yeah. and actually being taught a better way of doing things. Stuart said, I thought you guys would get a kick out of this. And it's an MSN article, which is basically just screenshots of a Reddit thread with someone who basically said they can't use Windows for religious reasons. And then there's this whole debate about whether or not that is an actual thing that you can get away with. And they demanded to use Linux anyway. And it's quite a funny thread to read through. But um, it's it's all a bit silly. But I think the, the punchline of it, the outcome, was that they actually did end up with a Linux machine from the company. <laughs> so they won. So well done, that person who found a loophole to get a Linux machine. Except they gave them Mandrake 7 or something like that. From <laughs> yeah, probably. 1997. <laughs> what the fuck makes a news article these days? Screenshots, apparently. Jesus Christ. <laughs> At least it wasn't written by ChatGPT, or maybe it was. <laughs> oh, I heard the funniest thing in French. Apparently, <laughs> ChatGPT is, uh, was it cat I farted? If you were to say it in English, it's like chat je pété. 
And uh, yeah. so it says like everywhere on TV, like straight faced news presenters saying, Cat, I farted <laughs> over and over for things like, Is Cat, I farted going to steal your job? <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it makes you want to move to France and enjoy those, uh, well, give back those Brexit freedoms. Anyway, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I really have been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>